Chapter 9, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 9, Part 1 Strauss's Opponents and Supporters. Bibliography David Friedrich Strauss. Replies to Criticisms of My Work on the Life of Jesus with an Estimate of Present-Day Theology. Tübingen, 1837. David Friedrich Strauss, The Life of Jesus, 3rd Revised Edition, 1838-1839. Tübingen. August Tholuck, The Credibility of the Gospel History with an Incidental Criticism of Strauss's Life of Jesus. Hamburg, 1837. August Wilhelm Neander, The Life of Jesus Christ, Hamburg, 1837. August Wilhelm Neander, Dr. Neander's Report, drawn up at the request of the authorities, upon Dr. Strauss's Life of Jesus, and the measures to be adopted in regard to its circulation, 1836. Leonard Hug, Report on David Friedrich Strauss's Critical Work upon the Life of Jesus, Freeburg, 1840. Christian Gottlob Wilke, Tradition and Myth, a contribution to the general historical criticism of the Gospels, with special reference to the mythical idealism of Strauss's Life of Jesus. Leipzig, 1837. August Ebrard, Scientific Criticism of the Gospel History. Frankfurt, 1842. Georg Heinrich August Ewald, History of Christ and His Times, 1855, 5th volume of the Geschichte des Volkes Israel. Christoph Friedrich von Amun, History of the Life of Jesus with Constant Reference to the Extent Sources, 3 volumes, 1842-1847. through 1847. Scarcely has ever a book let loose such a storm of controversy and scarcely ever has a controversy been so barren of immediate result. The fertilizing rain brought up a crop of toadstools. Of the forty or fifty essays on the subject which appeared in the next five years, there are only four or five which are of any value, and even of these the value is very small. Strauss's first idea was to deal with each of his opponents separately, and he published, in 1837, three successive street shriften. In the preface to the first of these, he states that he has kept silence for two years from a rooted objection to anything in the nature of reply or counter-criticism, and because he had little expectation of any good results from such controversy. These essays are able, and are often written with biting scorn, especially that directed against his inveterate enemy, Studel of Tumingen, the representative of intellectual supernaturalism, and that against Eschenmeyer, a pastor, also of Tübingen. To a work of the latter, The Iscariotism of Our Days, written in 1835, he had referenced in the preface to the second volume of his Life of Jesus in the following remark, quote, This offspring of the legitimate marriage between theological ignorance and religious intolerance, blessed by a sleepwalking philosophy, succeeds in making itself so completely ridiculous that it renders any serious reply unnecessary. But for all his sarcasm, 
Strauss does not show himself an adroit debater in this controversy, any more than in later times in the Diet. It is indeed remarkable how unskilled in polemics is this man who had produced a critical work of the first importance with almost playful ease. If his opponents made no effort to understand him rightly, and many of them certainly wrote without having carefully studied the fourteen hundred pages of his two volumes, Strauss, on his part, seemed to be stricken with a kind of uncertainty, lost himself in a maze of detail, and failed to keep continually reformulating the main problems which he had set up for discussion, and so compelling his adversaries to face them fairly. Of these problems there were three. The first was composed of the related questions regarding miracle and myth. The second concerned the connection of the Christ of faith with the Jesus of history. The third referred to the relation of the Gospel of John to the synoptists. It was the first that attracted most attention. More than half the critics devoted themselves to it alone. Even so, they failed to get a thorough grasp of it. The only thing that they clearly see is that Strauss altogether denies the miracles. The full scope of the mythological explanation as applied to the traditional records of the life of Jesus, and the extent of the historical material which Strauss is prepared to accept, is still a riddle to them. That is in some measure due, it must in fairness be said, to the arrangement of Strauss's own work, in which the unconnected series of separate investigations makes the subject unnecessarily difficult, even for one who wishes to do the author justice. The attitude towards miracle, assumed in the anti-Strauss literature, shows how far the anti-rationalistic reaction had carried professedly scientific theology in the direction of supernaturalism. Some significant symptoms had begun to show themselves, even in Hase and Schleiermacher, of a tendency towards the overcoming of rationalism by a kind of intellectual gymnastic which ran some risk of falling into insincerity. The essential character of this new kind of historical theology first came to light when Strauss put it to the question, and forced it to substitute a plain yes or no for the ambiguous phrases with which this school had only too quickly accustomed itself to evade the difficulties of the problem of miracle. The mottoes with which this new school of theology adorned the works which it sent forth against the untimely troubler of their peace manifest its complete perplexity, and display the coquettish resignation with which the sacred learning of the time essayed to cover its nakedness, after it had succumbed to the temptation of the serpent insincerity. Adolf Harless of Erlingen chose the melancholy saying of Pascal, quote, Everything turns to the advantage of the elect, even to the obscurities of Scripture, and they treat them with reverence because of its perspicuities. Everything turns to the disadvantage of the reprobate, even to the perspicuities of Scripture, for they blaspheme them because they cannot understand its obscurities. Herr Wilhelm Hoffmann, deacon at Winningden, selected Bacon's aphorism. Quote, let the mind, so far as possible, be expanded to the greatness of the mysteries, not the mysteries contracted to the compass of the mind. Professor Ernst Osiander of the seminary at Malbronn appeals to Cicero, quote, 
O mighty power of truth, which against all the ingenious devices, the craft and subtlety of men, easily defends itself by its own strength. Franz Bader of Munich ornaments his work with the reflection, quote, Men must indeed be far from thee, O truth, since thou art able to bear with their ignorance, their errors, and their crimes. Close quote. Tholuck girds himself with the Catholic maxim of Vincent of Larens, Let us hold that which has been believed always, everywhere, by all. The fear of Strauss had, indeed, a tendency to inspire Protestant theologians with Catholicizing ideas. One of the most competent reviewers of his book, Dr. Ullmann, in the Studien und Kritiken, had expressed the wish that it had been written in Latin to prevent its doing harm among the people. An anonymous dialogue of the period shows us the schoolmaster coming in distress to the clergyman. He has allowed himself to be persuaded into reading the book by his acquaintance, the major, and he is now anxious to get rid of the doubts which it has aroused in him. When his cure has been safely accomplished, the reverend gentleman dismisses him with the following exhortation. Quote, now I hope that after the experience which you have had, you will for the future refrain from reading books of this kind, which are not written for you, and of which there is no necessity for you to take any notice, and for the refutation of which, should that be needful, you have no equipment. You may be quite sure that anything useful or profitable for you, which such books may contain, will reach you in due course, through the proper channel and in the right way and that being so, you are under no necessity to jeopardize any part of your peace of mind. Tholuck's work professedly aims only at presenting a quote, historical argument for the credibility of the miracle stories of the Gospels. Close quote. He says in one place, quote, Even if we admit the scientific position that no act can have proceeded from Christ which transcends the laws of nature, there is still room for the mediating view of Christ's miracle-working activity. This leads us to think of mysterious powers of nature as operating in the history of Christ, powers such as we have some partial knowledge of, as, for example, those magnetic powers which have survived down to our own time, like ghosts on after the coming of day. Close quote. From the standpoint of this spurious rationalism, he proceeds to take Strauss to task for rejecting the miracles. Quote, Had this latest critic been able to approach the gospel miracles without prejudice, he would certainly, since he is a man who, in addition to the acumen of the scholar, possesses sound common sense, have come to a different conclusion in regard to these difficulties. As it is, however, he has approached the gospels with the convictions that miracles are impossible. And on that assumption, it was certain before the argument began that the evangelists were either deceivers or deceived. Neander, in his Life of Jesus, handles the question with more delicacy of touch, rather in the style of Schleiermacher. He explains, quote, Christ's miracles are to be understood as an influencing of nature, human or material. Close quote. He does not, however, 
give so much prominence as schleiermacher had done to the difficulty involved in the supposition of an influence exercised upon material nature he repeats schleiermacher's assertion but without the imposing dialectic which in schleiermacher's hands almost commands assent in regard to the miracle at cana he remarks quote, we cannot indeed form any clear conception of an effect brought about by the introduction of a higher creative principle into the natural order, since we have no experience on which to base such a conception. But we are by no means compelled to take this extreme view as to what happened. We may quite well suppose that Christ, by an immediate influence upon the water, communicated to it a higher potency which enabled it to produce the effects of strong wine. In the case of all the miracles, he makes a strong point of seeking not only the explanation, but the higher symbolical significance. The miracle of the fig tree, which is sui generis, has only this symbolical significance, seeing that it is not beneficent and creative, but destructive. Quote, it can only be thought of as a vivid illustration of a prediction of the divine judgment after the manner of the symbolic actions of the old testament prophets with reference to the ascension and the resurrection he writes quote, even though we can form no clear idea of the exact way in which the exaltation of christ from the earth took place and indeed there is much that is obscure in regard to the earthly life of christ after his resurrection yet in its place in the organic unity of the christian faith it is as certain as the resurrection which apart from it cannot be recognized in its true significance that extract is typical of neander's life of jesus which in its time was hailed as a great achievement calculated to provide a learned refutation to strauss's criticism and of which a seventh edition appeared as late as eighteen seventy two the real piety of heart with which it is imbued cannot conceal the fact that it is a patchwork of unsatisfactory compromises it is the child of despair and has perplexity for godfather one cannot read it without pain neander however may fairly claim to be judged not by this work but by his personal attitude in the strauss controversy and here he appears as a magnanimous and dignified representative of theological science immediately after the appearance of strauss's book which it was at once seen would cause much offence the prussian government asked neander to report upon it with a view to prohibiting the circulation should there appear to be grounds for doing so he presented his report on the fifteenth of november eighteen thirty five and in an accurate account of it having appeared in the allgemeine zeitung subsequently published it in it he censures the work as being written from a too purely rationalistic point of view but strongly urges the government not to suppress it by an edict he describes it as quote, a book which it must be admitted constitutes a danger to the sacred interests of the church but which follows the method of endeavoring to produce a reasoned conviction by means of argument hence any other method of dealing with it than by meeting argument with argument will appear in the unfavorable light of an arbitrary interference with the freedom of science 
in holding that scientific theology will be able by its own strength to overthrow whatever in strauss's life of jesus deserves to be overthrown neander is at once with the anonymous writer of aphorisms in defense of dr strauss and his work who consoles himself with goethe's saying quote, strive hard and though your aim be wrong your work shall live its little day strive hard and for the truth be strong your work shall live and grow for a Close quote. says this anonymous writer quote, dr strauss does not represent the author's views and he on his part cannot undertake to defend dr strauss's conclusions but it is clear to him that dr strauss's work considered as a scientific production is more scientific than the works opposed to it from the side of religion are religious otherwise why are they so passionate so apprehensive so unjust Close quote. this confidence in pure critical science was not shared by herr privat docent daniel schenkel of basle afterwards professor at heidelberg in a dreary work dedicated to his gottingen teacher luca on historical science and the church he looks for future salvation towards that middle region where faith and science interpenetrate and hails the new supernaturalism which approximates to a scientific treatment of these subjects quote, as a hopeful phenomenon Close quote. he rejoices in the violent opposition at zurich which led to the cancelling of strauss's appointment regarding it as likely to exercise an elevating influence a similarly lofty position is taken up by the anonymous author of dr strauss and the zurich church to which de Vetta contributed a preface though professing great esteem for strauss and admitting that from the purely historical point of view he was in the right the author feels bound to congratulate the zurichers on having refused to admit him to the office of teacher the pure rationalists found it much more difficult than did the mediating theologians whether of the older or younger school to adjust their attitude to the new solution of the miracle question strauss himself had made it difficult for them by remorselessly exposing the absurd and ridiculous aspects of their method and by refusing to recognize them as allies in the battle for truth as they really were paulus would have been justified in bearing him a grudge but the inner greatness of that man of hard exterior comes out in the fact that he put his personal feelings in the background and when strauss became the central figure for the battle for the purity and freedom of historical science he ignored his attacks on rationalism and came to his defence in a very remarkable letter to the free canton of zurich on freedom in theological teaching and in the choice of teachers for colleges zurich eighteen thirty nine he urges the council and the people to appoint strauss because of the principle at stake and in order to avoid giving any encouragement to the retrograde movement in historical science it is as though he felt that the end of rationalism had come but that in the person of the enemy who had defeated it the pure love of truth which was the only thing that really mattered would triumph over all the forces of reaction it would not however be true to say that strauss had beaten rationalism from the field in amon's famous life of jesus in which the author takes up a very respectful attitude towards strauss 
there is a vigorous survival of a peculiar kind of rationalism inspired by Kant. Footnote. Amon was born in 1766 at Beirut, became professor of theology at Erlangen in 1790, was professor in Göttingen from 1794 to 1804, and, after being back in Erlangen in the meantime, became, in 1813, senior court chaplain and Oberkonsistorialrat at Dresden, where he died in 1850. He was the most distinguished representative of historical critical rationalism. End footnote. For Amon, a miraculous event can only exist when its natural causes have been discovered. Quote, the sacred history is subject to the same laws as all other narratives of antiquity. Close quote. Luca, in dealing with the raising of Lazarus, has thrown out the question whether biblical miracles could be thought of historically at all, and in so doing, supposed that he was putting their absolute character on a firmer basis. Says Ammon, quote, We give the opposite answer from that which is expected. Only historically conceivable miracles can be admitted. Close quote. He cannot away with the constant confusion of faith and knowledge found in so many writers, quote, who swim in an ocean of ideas in which the real and the illusory are as inseparable as salt and sea water in the actual ocean. Close quote. In every natural process, he explains, we have to suppose, according to Kant, an interpenetration of natural and supernatural. For that very reason, the purely supernatural does not exist for our experience. He lays it down on the lines of Kant's Critique der Reinen Vernunft, quote, It is no doubt certain that every act of causation which goes forth from God must be immediate, universal, and eternal, because it is thought as an effect of his will, which is exalted above space and time, and interpenetrates both of them, but without abolishing them, leaving them undisturbed in their continuity and succession. For us men, therefore, all action of God is mediate, because we are completely surrounded by time and space, as the fish is by the sea, or the bird by the air. And apart from these relations, we should be incapable of apperception, and therefore of any real experience. As free beings, we can, indeed, think of miracle as immediately divine, but we cannot perceive it as such, because that would be impossible without seeing God, which, for wise reasons, is forbidden to us. In accordance with these principles, we shall hold it to be our duty, in what follows, to call attention to the natural side even of the miracles of Jesus, since apart from this no fact can become an object of belief. Close quote. It is only in this intelligible sense that the cures of Jesus are to be thought of as miracles. The magnetic force with which the mediating theology makes play is to be rejected. Quote, the cure of psychical diseases by the power of the word and of faith is the only kind of cure in which the student of natural science can find any basis for a conjecture regarding the way in which the cures of Jesus were affected. Close quote. In the case of the other miracles, Ammon assumes a kind of occasionalism, in the sense that it may have pleased the divine providence, quote, to fulfill, in fact, the confidently spoken promises of Jesus, and in that way to confirm his personal authority, 
which was necessary to the establishment of his doctrine of the divine salvation. Close quote. In most cases, however, he is content to repeat the rationalistic explanation, and portrays a Jesus who makes use of medicines, allows the demoniac himself to rush upon the herd of swine, helps a leper whom he sees to be suffering only from one of the milder forms of the disease, to secure the public recognition of his being legally clean, and who exerts himself to prevent by word and act the premature burial of persons in a state of trance. The story of the feeding of the multitude is based on some occasion when there was, quote, a bountiful display of hospitality, a generous sharing of provisions, inspired by Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving, and the example which he set when the disciples were inclined selfishly to hold back their own supply. Close quote. The story of the miracle at Cana rests on a mere misunderstanding, those who report it not having known that the wine which Jesus caused to be secretly brought forth was the wedding gift which he was presenting in the name of the family. As a disciple of Kant, however, Ammon feels obliged to refute the imputation that Jesus could have done anything to promote excess, and calculates that the present of wine which Jesus had intended to give the bridal pair may be estimated as equivalent to not more than eighteen bottles. Footnote. He is at one with Strauss in rejecting the explanation of this miracle on the analogy of an expedited natural process to which Haza had pointed, and which was first suggested by Augustine. Quote, that Christ changed water into wine is nothing wonderful to those who consider the works of God. What was done in the water-pots, God does yearly in the vine. Close quote. Nevertheless, the poorest naturalistic explanation is at least better than the resignation of Luca, who is content to wait, quote, until it please God through the further progress of Christian thought and life to bring about the solution of this riddle in its natural and historical aspects. Close quote. End footnote. He explains the walking on the sea by claiming for Jesus an acquaintance with, quote, the art of treading water. Close quote. Only in regard to the explanation of the resurrection does Ammon break away from rationalism. He decides that the reality of the death of Jesus is historically proved, but he does not venture to suppose a real reawakening to life, and remains at the standpoint of Herder. But the way in which, in spite of the deeper view of the conception of miracle which he owes to Kant, he constantly falls back upon the most pedestrian naturalistic explanations, and his failure to rid himself of the prejudice that an actual, even if not a miraculous fact, must underlie all the recorded miracles, is in itself sufficient to prove that we have here to do with a mere revival of rationalism, that is, with an untenable theory which Strauss's refutation of Paulus had already relegated to the past. It was an easier task for pure supernaturalism than for pure rationalism to come to terms with Strauss. For the former, Strauss was only the enemy of the mediating theology. There was nothing to fear from him and much to gain. Accordingly, Hengstenberg's Evangelische Kirchenzeitung hailed Strauss's book as, quote, one of the most gratifying phenomena in the domain of recent theological literature, close quote, and praises the author for having carried out with logical consistency 
the application of the mythical theory which had formerly been restricted to the old testament and certain parts only of the gospel tradition Quote, all that strauss has done is to bring the spirit of the age to a clear consciousness of itself and of the necessary consequences which flow from its essential character he has taught it how to get rid of foreign elements which were still present in it and which marked an imperfect stage of its development he has been the most influential factor in the necessary process of separation there is no one with whom hingstenberg feels himself more in agreement than with the tubingen scholar had he not shown with the greatest precision how the results of the hegelian philosophy one may say of philosophy in general reacted upon christian faith Quote, the relation of speculation to faith has now come clearly to light Close quote. writes hengstenberg in eighteen thirty six two nations are struggling in the womb of our time and two only they will be ever more definitely opposed to one another unbelief will more and more cast off the elements of faith to which it still clings and faith will cast off its elements of unbelief that will be an inestimable advantage had the time spirit continued to make concessions concessions would constantly have been made to it in return Close quote. therefore the man who quote, calmly and deliberately laid hands upon the lord's anointed undeterred by the vision of the millions who have bowed the knee and still bow the knee before his appearing close quote, has in his own way done a service strauss on his part escaped with relief from the musty atmosphere of the study beloved by theology in carpet slippers to the bracing air of hengstenberg's kirchenzeitung in his replies he devotes to it some fifty-four pages he says quote, i must admit that it is a satisfaction to me to have to do with the evangelische kirchenzeitung in dealing with it one knows where one is and what one has to expect if herr hengstenberg condemns he knows why he condemns and even one against whom he launches his anathema must admit that the attitude becomes him anyone who like the editor of the evangelische kirchenzeitung has taken upon him the yoke of confessional doctrine with all its implications has paid a price which entitles him to the privilege of condemning those who differ from his opinions Close quote. footnote ernst wilhelm hengstenberg was born in eighteen o two at frondenberg in the county of mark became professor of theology in berlin in eighteen twenty six and died there in eighteen sixty nine he founded evangelische kirchenzeitung in eighteen twenty seven End footnote hengstenberg's only complaint against strauss is that he does not go far enough he would have liked to force upon him the role of the wolfenbutel fragmentist and considers that if strauss did not like the latter go so far as to suppose the apostles guilty of deliberate deceit that is not so much from any regard for the historical kernel of christianity as in order to mask his attack End of chapter nine part one